This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group, the global PR, content and business development specialist that builds a reputation and growth for companies in media, marketing, retail and technology. I'm Martin Lote, founder of Propeller and curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, we invite a business leader with something to say into our kennel for a chat. We ask them to dig up something a bit tasty for us to chew on. In this episode, we're going to talk about social media, trolling, polarisation of opinion and how brands can deal with it, what's happening in the metaverse, and social advocacy. And I'm joined by Tamara Littleton, founder and CEO of The Social Element, which happens to be a client of Propeller, the sponsor of the podcast. Tamara, welcome to The Dog and Bone. It's my pleasure. It's lovely to be here. Tell me a little bit more about what's happening at The Social Element right now and where the company's at, just for the benefit of our listeners who don't know too much about it. Of course. So, well, I'm excited about the fact that we're turning 20 this year. We're booking our, our, our birthday party, as it were, and hopefully having one in New York. But, uh, yeah, for people who don't know us, The Social Element, as I said, 20 years now, we help brands uh, have a genuine human connection with their consumers on social. So we're absolutely obsessed with social and we work with amazing brands like Oreo, Visa and Peloton and Nissan and Dr Pepper. And we have a team of about uh, 260 people all around the world. And uh, yeah, we just uh, spend all our day on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, all of that. <laughs> Sounds ideal. When, when you say a genuine human connection, I suppose a lot of social media companies would, would, would say that. What, what is different about the way you handle it or the approach you bring to a brand's social media? Well, I think one thing, it's, it's the cultural moment. So we have people in different countries who can speak on behalf of the brand in the right tone of voice, in the right culture. Um, we're also looking out for those moments of, you know, when to jump into a, an interesting news news story or, uh, you know, when there's some sort of fun thing happening. Um, and also, again, I suppose about being genuine, knowing when to uh, sort of get that tone of voice right and maybe uh, reading the room, I always like to say. So it's, it's about we are the voice of the brand. Uh, so... Yeah, we, we want to sort of represent the brand, but in that human way. And I think because my background was actually more in the community management side, uh, so I'm obsessed about how communities form on online. So differently to other agencies, a lot of our insight comes from the fact that we are in the communities, uh, you know, all day on, on social media, as I said, on TikTok, etc. We We spot what's bubbling up and we know how to then engage and connect in in that human way when you mention community management then do you tend to kind of enter communities that are already organically formed or do you kind of create them and seed them and get them going for your clients and if so sort of how do you do that it's a bit of both i must admit um you know over the years there was a lot more around creating communities from from scratch um and then as uh, all of the platforms sort of uh, became much more mainstream. No one was really doing that. It was more about working on on different platforms. So, for our clients, obviously they're on the main ones like TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, uh, etc. But um, Pinterest gone gone up a little bit recently. But also we're in Reddit, for example. So we do a mixture of being in the community, finding out what people are saying, engaging with people, doing like proactive engagement. But a lot of what we do is actually monitoring as well and working out what what the sentiment is. And for that, we have to be 
pretty much everywhere because for us it's about uh, marketing and loyalty and connecting with fans but there is a side of what we do which is crisis management and monitoring for issues as well so yeah it's a bit of everything right I do want to get on you mentioned the 20 years and I do want to get on to the journey and your own personal journey as a, as a high profile advocate in many issues um, but yeah just to unpack a little bit more about what's actually happening on the kind of social media scene at the moment be fascinating to get your your expert view um because there's, there's, there's so much has changed and we're hearing about, you know, there's the on things like the online safety bill and fake news and the big tech companies are in the frame yeah. for not doing enough to, to, to moderate. You're right in the thick of what, what's happening. What, what's your take on the balance between um, freedom to publish and say anything or, um, you know, due process and, and, and moderation, particularly when brands are involved as well? Yeah, I think it would... It's it's quite nuanced, is what I will I will mm. start off with. Mm. Um, it would be easy to say that it's all down to the tech platforms, and you know, over the years there have definitely been times where I've said that they they should step up more, they should be uh, focused more on on safety and and uh, you know creating a, a better space. But it is incredibly difficult because. Humans are humans and they will adapt to whatever the platform is doing. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes they sort of, you know, society comes into it as well. Um, so I think where it's been really interesting is because I have been in the industry for so long and uh, right at the beginning, I, I was helping the uh, the government on the early child safety guidelines uh, many uh, moons ago. And, and so have uh, two of my members of exec as well. So the heritage of the company was actually more around brand protection and uh, looking after children and, and vulnerable people. So it's kind of built in. And so I've always been very vocal about how the, the tech platforms need to step up but there is a part of society that we need to look at ourselves as well and think well why is why are certain things happening you know for example um since 2015 uh, hate crimes uh, against lgbtq community have been on the rise and there are arguments about well is that to do with society is it to do with social media are we all becoming quite polarised? And that is the side that I think perhaps needs more uh, attention paid is how how are we dealing with, you know, fake news, misinformation and putting people into sort of two different camps so that they are attacking each other more? Yeah, but as a high-profile leader in the LGBTQ community yourself, what yeah. is your actual, what is your opinion on that? Where, where, where do you stand on those, for example, the, the growth in hate crime? Is it because social media is somehow stimulating a greater sort of movement of messages that people might have harboured private thoughts on beforehand? Or is it that society itself is actually changing, becoming sadly more hateful? I think it is a bit of both, but I think we have to look at... Um, that when people are given a voice, uh, I'm such a champion of social media and, you know, you see the good and you see the good in communities and you see how, for example, during the pandemic and during lockdown, how people did come together to to help. So I'm not going to sort of just be anti-social media, well, no, of course, and not, <laughs> not in my position as well. But, you know, if we do look at it... Uh, you know there is that rise of hatred and and i think it becomes easier for people to uh target uh groups and then everyone sort of jumps onto mm. it so yes there is a, a rise of 
pylons, uh, so called. Pylons, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and obviously, I I don't have the evidence to back this up um, as such, but. Uh, one would imagine that when you get all of that hatred on social media, it does impact on people, and then it 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 sort of takes its own course in in the physical world in the way that people uh, attack. So it, is it's that, the sound. Is that true? Is that proven? Because you know, obviously, one sees and hears lots of things in the in the in the digital world, but um, obviously, it doesn't immediately mean that same level of hate will manifest itself well, physically. But but yes, but I suppose what we can prove is that as yeah, since 2015, if the if the hate crimes have gone up and people being physically attacked right. from the LGBT com- community, when you'd imagine that we've made so many strides over the years to to sort of make a difference mm. and and for people to be more accepted, but there is a rise in hate crimes against trans people and uh, homophobic attacks, and, and and as I said, I can't prove that it's connected to social media, right, but but, they, th- but there's a rise, there's a rise at the same on, time. on social media. And and all I can say is that you know in in the twenty years, I have just seen people get getting nastier yeah. and you know more trolling used to be sort of perhaps you get the odd pocket of people who were really quite mm. sinister and psychopathic, but most of the time it was quite sort of just annoying. Um, but then, you know, fast forward several years, right. there there was some really quite vitriolic yeah. content. And so what, what what's the solution? I mean, some people say the tech companies should have better algorithms or I imagine uh, manual monitoring is, is quite hard at scale, but maybe better algorithms or um, public public accounts. You know, obviously, if people just had set up, you'd be no much more than me. But if people just set up a sort of fake or sort of um, pseudonym type account sitting in a living room somewhere firing off pot shots it's very easy so is is there a solution around declaring who people are or tech companies taking more steps so i think it is about tech companies uh stepping up doing more investing in in uh more safety and building in ethics right from the beginning you know when they're actually building tools um Mm. I'm an ambassador for the uh, internet commission which is a a non-profit uh organization where it's more about getting the big companies to work together to have best best practice in terms of moderation, uh, online safety, uh, content conduct, and I'm a big fan of this approach because I've, I have, you know, in the last years, been more of a fan of the industry should do better and and step up. That doesn't need government regulation. Right. It should be sort of driven by uh, industry best practice. But it's been a long time, and perhaps things have not moved fast enough. So I think. You know, it's moving now towards more government uh, intervention, but I'm still hopeful that uh, that companies can work together and share best practice and and focus on it. Because the other thing is, from a brand point of view, that brands will not associate themselves with technology platforms that are going to sort of harm people or or you know affect their reputation. So I think large brands do have a lot of sway in this. Right. Well, that does raise a point I was going to touch on because sometimes a brand will come under attack. Um, and I, I was reading an article you wrote in Campaign, actually, about the John Lewis advert with the dancing child with yes. makeup on. And that came under attack. And you might want to, in a minute, just explain what happened there. But I suppose then that does polarise because you'll then have you'll have one side of the audience of a brand that are critical of them. And yeah. there'll be another side that will say... 
that will criticise the, the people doing the, the first lot of criticising and, and say, well, in that case, if you're going to say that, you know, I'm going the other way. Yeah. So what does a brand do when faced with that kind of polarising lobby? Because commercially, they probably want money off everybody unless... Unless I've got that wrong. <laughs> no, well, it, it is a tough one. And I think this is what we see um, uh, when when brands are sort of uh, being attacked in that way. Because, uh, um, yes, eight, eight years ago, I also co-founded a second company, which is called Polpeo, which is a crisis simulation platform. So we actually right. help brands um, rehearse going through a, a reputational crisis mm. on, on social media. And we have role players and we make it very intense and very emotional. But uh, we've noticed over time, and my, my co-founder, Kate Hartley, who's uh, written on a, a book on this, she always talks about that you get this second wave. So essentially, if a brand is sort of jumped on by the first mob, yeah. <laughs> putting it sort of quite yeah. <laughs> plainly, yeah. Um, there are choices of either... Um, uh, you know, talking back to uh, to the the people attacking them. Uh, you know, whether you go to individual discussions, uh, do sort of group uh, messages, etc. But the behaviour is often then uh, criticised. So if a brand then changes their mind and yes. sort of says, "Oh, the the mob is against me. I'm going to do this instead," there will be a second wave of people uh, attacking them for changing their behaviour. Right. So sometimes you almost feel like a brand. Uh, can't always win and a lot of the time when we're talking to to brands we're trying to reassure them that there will always be people who have an opinion and there will always be people who are um, you know aggressive towards you and it's more about trying to work with the people that you can connect with and be aware of that um, uh, sort of people attacking but don't base your whole strategy on yeah. it. The second wave thing is a good point because it means holding your nerve I suppose but totally just take us through just quickly what happened in the case of the John John Lewis because your your point was that they they possibly should have defended defended their defenders a bit better but maybe you could just explain what your, your yes, point was yes absolutely and and you know just to be clear um they they're not actually uh, a client of ours but uh, as you said I'm sort of very interested in in these matters being a sort of out uh, queer CEO and and I think it's I'm, I always like to have a, an opinion on these matters right um yes. but yeah I personally thought it was a, a great ad because it had uh, a young child um, who was being very much uh, themselves and I, I thought it was adorable and it was a good sort of take on a, on a previous one. Yes, it built on their previous dancing yes, child one with the Elton the John, Elton John backdrop, so, yes. backdrop, yeah. Um Then there were sort of some people who were uh, picking up on the fact, so people in the industry picking up on the fact that it was... Um, uh, just a bit sort of stereotypical and and you know there there was one opinion and and then other people were piling on with opinions and uh the uh, and my point at the time was that where there were people who were defending it so the the public going on social media and saying i love this ad um they were getting attacked on the owned channels uh by the brand uh by other people who were then calling them pedophiles and things like that you know right, as yeah. as people just jump on an attack yeah. so uh, i feel like brands do have a duty of care that if they're going to uh, be out there have a campaign um it's important to have engagement as part of a campaign but it's also important to have a duty of care to to um you know moderate that content and and look after your 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 genuine fans otherwise there is a sort of sense of them being slightly abandoned and and i think that story went on into a different route because actually they 
the the ad was pulled, but for very different reasons. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it it. What were the reasons again? There. Was it to do? I think it was to do with was, actually the insurance policy yes, or something, something like that. Something about yeah. misleading content in that sense. Yeah. So, are there any examples from your client base that you're happy to talk about? Almost like a case study where you've you've helped a client through this kind of crisis situation. Because I suppose, as an observer, if anything is run as an ad or a piece of marketing communication, then has to get pulled or does get pulled mm. by way of a backlash, be it first or second wave. Something's kind of gone wrong then in terms of the prediction, unless it is part of the strategy to sort of, I don't know, irritate the beast to get publicity. But maybe you could talk more to some specifics that you've seen. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we worked with a a big, uh, well-known bank, for example, when they were supporting uh, Pride. And I think this is a great example example, where, you know, a a brand will um, be affiliated with with a cause. And in this case, they were supporting uh, Pride. But you will get that backlash of consumers. As I said, people are people and some of them are really annoying. And people coming back and just sort of saying, I'm closing my account. Why are you supporting gay people? And and just, you know, that's what you get, that level of sort of vitriol. Um, What's really been good and how we work with our clients is helping them stand for their values uh, and really doubling down on the message to defend the brands and you know there were times where we were sort of saying how can we help you move to another bank you know it was quite really? uh, bullshy okay. um but it's really important and you know there are other brands like um uh, oreo is so strong in supporting the uh, the trans community for example but that does lead to uh, you know backlashes as well so a lot of the time we are uh, supporting and pre-planning things as well if we know that a campaign uh, for any of our clients is going to be uh, quite out there it's important to have an engagement strategy and be prepared for any sort of issues or backlash and and how do you handle it in your senior position because assuming there must be some tensions between what sort of positions you've outlined and just pure commercial considerations if you stick up for that um sort of can we help you get to another bank idea yeah and that was to result in 10,000 people moving their accounts are you saying to the client those are 10,000 people you don't want or is the client saying to you that's 10,000 lifetime values of several hundred thousand pounds worth of savings and interest that are mucking up our spreadsheets and uh, we wish we hadn't gone there tomorrow (laughs) sure sure (laughs) no I mean it's all done in collaboration with clients and and it's about the brand and you know staying true to your values and uh you know, I think more and more brands are, are braver to say, well, we don't particularly want those clients. So I, I realise that, yes, from a commercial point of view, if you suddenly lose uh, lots of lots of accounts, but it, it's it's the bigger picture because every time a brand puts themselves out there and, yes, there will be uh, customers who say, I've had enough, I'm out, yeah. there will be a wave of new customers who say, I like I like what you're doing yeah. and I connect to those values. So it will, you know, it's more about finding newer audiences yes, as well. Yes, purpose aligns you with. Definitely. Um, on that topic of purpose, there was a quite high-profile comment, wasn't there, about Unilever and uh, the purpose of Hellman's mayonnaise. Somebody uh, criticised them for the Alan Jope, the chief exec, talking about uh, every band has a purpose. And somebody said, well, what's the purpose of mayonnaise? What's your opinion on this whole kind of purpose marketing, which has obviously gained traction in recent years, but... Do you feel every every brand or corporation should align with a purpose or is that down to the personnel or the, the chief exec or whoever may be leading it in some cases? No, I think purpose-led marketing is is, uh, is in- 
incredibly important as long as the purpose is valid and authentic. And it's about the uh, the audience c- connecting to it. I mean, we're big fans of social media not being a, a broadcast channel. It is a sort of, you know, it's a one to one to one communication channel, but just done uh, at scale. Um but I, I think it's all about uh, finding that reason to connect people. And sometimes that does mean emotional content, uh, finding uh, a purpose. I think what gets difficult is if if it's seen as a brand just sort of, you know, jumping on the back of something like the gender pay gap, but actually that they, they can't... Um, you know, they haven't earned the right to be in that conversation, for example. So maybe their business practices don't align to what they're putting out as a marketing pur- purpose. That's when things will start to go wrong. But, uh, you know, I appreciate that, you know, not every product has that sort of higher purpose, but actually you can find a connection. Uh, so, so yeah, I would sit on the camp of purpose-led marketing. Do you strategically, when you encounter a new client, does your process sort of strategically try and get them down the purpose road, helping them find something to align with, or does that naturally come out of where they are at that moment? It comes out of um, the uh, tone of voice and the, the guidelines and the engagement strategy. So because, you know, often we're working alongside a, a massive creative agency, so we'll be aware of what the big idea for a campaign is, for mm. example. And we do a mixture of business-as-usual, day-to-day engagement and uh, you know content that we're, we're putting out and, and overall strategy, but we align with uh, the brand and any agencies that they're working with on the the purpose of the, the whole campaign, and part of that will be setting up a, an engagement strategy but tone of voice is critical, and I think it's something that does get a bit forgotten that, you know, if a brand has more personality, uh, it's absolutely critical and it can really allow people to sort of connect with that brand. So right. we spend a lot of time on the uh, tone of voice, which, of course, is connected to brand purpose. Yeah. You raise an interesting point there, which is perhaps more about how we work in our in our various industries and sectors uh, together for a brand in that you would be working alongside a, an ad agency doing the big campaign. And actually, perhaps even going back to the, the John Lewis example and others, is is there in your mind um, a bit more work to be done aligning, say, the social media support with the with the big brand TV activation, for example? Does the does perhaps the agency, the big TV campaign kind of run and then what you're doing is sort of a little bit of a an afterthought and you have to fight to get into the integration from day one? Yes, exactly that. We've been on a journey. Um, The clients that we work with uh, now, um, there's a lot more um, agency interaction and we we have uh, very collaborative meetings because in an ideal way, uh, sorry, in an ideal situation, the social element would be right uh, there at the table in the early days deciding, you know, once we know what the, the campaign, the big idea is, we can actually add so much value and start working on some social first content. And uh, as I said, the sort of um, the engagement strategy, managing all sort of risk as well, brand protection. So um, it's something that we talk to our clients about that how important it is that we're there at the beginning. And, you know, we have great relationships with the uh, with the creative agencies, with the media agencies. We're often working alongside perhaps sort of a, a PR agency as well. So that ecosystem is absolutely critical. And and I find, you know, speaking to so many um, marketing leaders, uh, you know, that I meet either as clients or socially or, um, 
because they're on my uh, podcast, for example, they appreciate that collaboration because it makes it easier for them. Yes. I mean, ideally, yes. And speaking from the kind of more public relations side, which is my background, I totally recognise that idea of the, the client doing making a big move and then coming to the PR company quite late and saying, you've got to do something with this. You know, we've had calls the day of a company announcing a float on the stock exchange or a takeover yeah. and had to do something with it. Or uh, I suppose my colleagues would, would also um, concur being handed a press release or an article and said, you know, get that in the FT and you know that if it had a different opening paragraph or a yeah. different headline or was contextualised to the news at the moment, it'd be much easier to do. So, yeah, I think we're all on our journeys. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you're enjoying it, please share the link with your network. Subscribe on iTunes or your normal podcast provider. And if you're feeling really inspired, please write a review to help us zoom up the charts. Now, back to the conversation. Talking about journeys, earlier on you mentioned, and congratulations, 20 years uh, for the agency. Well Thank done, you. that's terrific. Just tell us a little bit more about how you kind of got started and some of the, the sort of changes and lessons and phases you've, you've been through over those 20 years tomorrow. Sure. Well, it's a bit of a classic start in a garage kind of story. Um, I had some investment from my uh, parents. I was very uh, uh, lucky to to have that. I also had um, some redundancy money. So, And I think when you start a, an agency, you don't have to have as much money up front. But uh, it's amazing how quickly that money goes. Um, but I suppose the challenge was actually starting a social media agency before social media. So right. <laughs> that was the tricky part. There was a lot of education of clients at the beginning. And and then what happened was uh, sort of a few years in, there was the rise of user-generated content. So I'll be sort of, there's a, a bit of a walk down memory lane for, yeah. for many people that when people were doing sort of perhaps microsites involving a campaign, user-generated content. And we started more in the brand protection moderation space where we worked with so many brands. We were working with like GE, Burger King, Domino's, just and loads of agencies. So it was it was such a a sort of pioneering time in terms of uh, marketing and advertising. But people needed to make sure that everything was okay. If if you're going to ask the public to connect and send pictures of themselves right. or, or whatever they're doing, yeah. you need to make sure those pictures are safe. So um, that was the sort of the growth, um, and and then it just sort of pivoted more into much more of a, a social media agency where we do strategy content and engagement. Um, I started it with a remote first model as well, partly um, because uh, I didn't have any money and I didn't have any money for an office. But actually, I was very used to that sort of style of working. I'd been at the BBC and then a company called Cello. I was working in um, tech and operations and uh, before that, in online publishing, when it really was so pioneering, when Adobe was a small startup doing a sort of project with a with a university on how to get PDFs loaded up onto the internet. So I'm talking early really days early of the days. web. It sounds I'm, like the Industrial Revolution. It sounds <laughs> like you're laying railway oh, tracks or something. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, just the time at the BBC was incredible because it really did feel like we were setting the standard for online at the beginning and it was a very sort of dynamic uh, dynamic team but I was uh, seduced into starting a company because it was the dot-com time 
Right. And uh, and I just spotted this opportunity around branded communities. And obviously I didn't know that then Facebook and Twitter would, would uh, come about, but um, it was uh, sort of being at the right, you know, in the right place at the right time. And, uh, and our early clients were American clients and it, it's just grown um, just enormously since then. Give us a quick idea of your, 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 you may have touched on it, but just recap your, your number of people, your offices, your, your size in terms of revenue and whatever you feel you can share. Sure, sure. So we're at uh, a team of 260. Um, uh, we're turning over a, a, about 9.5 million. Um, we're, uh, and we have people based in about 30 different countries. And uh, we did have an office in London and we still have obviously our sort of office base uh, in London and uh, we're based in uh, Los Angeles and uh, very soon Valencia in Spain as well. But we've actually gone back to the uh, to the model that I started with that uh, for now it's uh, fully remote and we're doing the hybrid approach for anyone in uh, the, the London area where we do go into um, an office and just sort of use it as we, we need kind of room of requirement for any Harry Potter fans. It's that sort of approach. If we, if we need to meet up, we will book something. But we're not, uh, we don't have a physical office at the moment. Right, right. I mean, just very quickly on that, that's obviously a, a topic on a lot of people's minds, including uh, uh, the Propeller team, about the, you know, working from home versus fully in the office yeah, yeah. versus hybrid. What's your opinion on the idea of just developing more junior staff? And perhaps one of the challenges I think people have faced is that, yes, you can have working from home and remote working, um, and that might suit more senior people, particularly if they've got a got to a stage in their life where they've got a nice bit of space at home and a spare bedroom. But it doesn't suit everyone, particularly if they're sharing a flat or something in London, yeah. given the prices they are. Um, but I'm specifically thinking about just the kind of learning on the job that a lot of us grew up with, with just sitting next to more senior people, hearing and kind of osmosis sinks in. Do you think that's lost in the remote working, or can it be? recreated digitally it can be recreated digitally to a certain extent and you know over the years um i i've done sort of so many sort of podcasts and blogs about culture on in a, a remote environment because we we've tried so hard to replicate the water cooler moments mm. um and have different ways of communicating and different ways that we do things and it works because there are times where i meet members of my team and and i genuinely can't remember if we've actually met in person or not because we've created such a bond with people and, um, you know, we've done sort of mentoring online. So I would say that we've worked very hard over the years to recreate the osmosis of being next to someone in a room. How do you do that? Is it one of the platforms you use, one of these new Yeah, it's a mixture of the sort of the the platforms. We use a lot of Google. We've sort of heavily invested in, you know, uh, web chat and and videos. But it's, it's the communication style as well. I've got an amazing chief people officer, Wendy Christie, and her whole job is to ensure that the culture is is really strong and you know part of that is the internal comms so we over communicate <laughs> there's lots that we do but um but i think i am a fan of meeting in person and mm. so for me that sort of hybrid approach is is the way forward where you know the american team will get together the just last week three of them were sort of having a an offsite strategy to, uh, meeting we were pitching yesterday and uh, some of the team came down from Edinburgh and all pitched together uh, in London and it's an excuse to have, you know, food and drink together. So those moments are incredible for creating that human connection. Yeah, definitely. Um, but it doesn't need to be every day. So I, I'm a big 
fan of the benefits of uh, flexible working, remote working, but you do need to combine it with some in-person because if you don't, I think people can get a bit um, uh, just a bit isolated actually and it's something we're all going to have to be really careful about I'd agree and they don't maybe particular some personalities or people at early stage of their career may find it harder to articulate that they're feeling that and so it's very beholden on the organisation or the employer to really reach out and find a a sensitive way of of hearing uh, because they might not immediately want to tell their immediate manager what they're feeling might might feel shy or a sign of weakness or something but the organisation needs to find a way of finding out where they are. So. Totally. And we invested in an um, amazing woman called uh, Chatel, who's our wellbeing coordinator. And that was one of the best moves that we did because we had her before uh, the pandemic hit. And right. uh, she, she's she been so fundamental in, in hmm. being there as a sort of source for, to, to help people and coming up with ways to manage stress and, and the whole issue of being at home. And uh, so, so, yes, looking after your team, obviously... Everybody says that it's yeah, it's critical, yeah. but uh, it's been a tough you know few years for people. So I think uh, just uh, having that focus has been so important. You mentioned well-being at uh, the social element. Do you have any particular practices or tips in terms of what you do for staff to um, encourage them to help them with their well-being and reward them and so on? Anything you could uh, share? You know, sometimes it's the small things. Um, like we tried to cut down on. The amount of meetings we've allowed people to. Um, some people have gone down to four days uh, a, a week, um, and also just respect around things like time for a meeting, like leaving the gaps to to at least allow ten minutes between meetings, yes. because it's you know those are the small things mm. to to just make sure that people are not just like constantly back to back meetings. Um, checking in, you know, we've definitely uh, upped the amount of one to ones. There's all the social side, but, you know, um, in terms of, as I said, meeting when we can in person and then doing, you know, quizzes and, and w- whatever. But to be honest, it's the small things yeah. um, and checking in um, and respecting people's time. The meeting one's interesting, isn't it? Because I think so many meetings go in with a start time. A few years ago, I used to spend a lot of time saying, you know, you must put in the end time as well. Because yeah. I think it's assumed it's an hour, but often it doesn't need to be. One of the things I quite like about the Zoom, the private Zoom account, it tends to be, I think, 40-minute cutoff. Yes. Um, so actually, I think that's quite, that's quite healthy because if that recalibrates the typical default meeting from one hour, to 60 minutes to 40 minutes, we actually get 20 minutes of our lives back several times during the day totally. and probably achieve the same. Yeah. And also, you know, just looking after um, ourselves as leaders as well. You know, uh, I'm sort of much more mindful that... Uh, I love doing a podcast. It also takes some energy out of me. Mm. And, you know, if you were going to do like a speaking event at a conference, you would have time to get there. You have time to to actually rehearse. You you do your talk, you leave, you decompress. But uh, if you're doing that on Zoom or, or Teams or whatever, you know, it got to the stage where I found that I was doing like three webinars or something in a day and then wondering why I was yeah, exhausted. Yeah, yeah. So normally you be, wouldn't do three conferences <laughs> in a day. <laughs> yeah. So I think um, just just thinking about things differently and yeah. perhaps giving ourselves all a little bit more time to pause. Right. 
I'll probably um, ask a couple of questions about your own personal um, journey and advocacy in the industry and so on in, in a sec. But one thing we didn't perhaps touch on when we were talking about you being right at the beginning of the internet and social media before social media was invented. I was just wondering if we're going through that kind of moment now with the with the metaverse, because yeah. I was sort of reading about uh, you know, legal challenges, about what who can own what in the metaverse, and it just had that beginnings of a Wild West feeling yeah. going back to what social media was like 20 years ago. So I, I don't know what uh, whether you draw parallels with the metaverse about what you've seen or whether it's a whole new universe as such. It's been interesting because people that I spoke to years ago and, and worked with, um, you know, many years ago have been back in touch because you're right, it is, it's, it, it's old school community management in some ways, but mm. it's also very different and it's very new. And I'm excited about the potential for brands. Um, and I also think that we've learned so much over the years that it would make sense that uh, people do talk to people who've been in the industry for a long time, particularly around the community management mm. uh, industry, because there was so much that we learnt uh, around sort of ethics and behaviour and conduct that could be reapplied and it should be reapplied. Um, you know, you take something like um, Facebook Horizons and there are loads of sort of memes going around with videos of people in the uh, in the, in the metaverse um, and their behaviour is just... <laughs> Some of it's just really annoying. You know, they will be going up to people and like poking them uh, and, and you know, in their space and right. trying to sort of troll them. And, and obviously you do have moderators there, but that's no different to how things were in Second Life or, you know, people might remember Habbo Hotel. Yeah. And, you know, people were behaving badly then and they are behaving badly now. Second life, that brings it back. That was, what, exactly. eight, 15, 18 years ago? Yeah, and there were some horrendous things that happened in there. Is you it know, still technically going? If you and me walked out of here now and wanted a Second Life account, could we do it or has it been shut down? I think it's still there. Right. I mean, yeah. I never actually Quiet got into life. Second Life myself. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, that seemed ahead of its time. But, um, yeah, the metaverse... Um, yeah, that'd be very interesting, the idea of a, a, a community in the metaverse and, and trolling. You're, you're expecting to see some... Oh, it's already happening. Hate speech in the metaverse. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's already happening. And I think that's the thing that, you know, and I, it probably sounds really dull that instead of thinking of all of the yeah. the, the positive things, but I, I think the truth is you have to lay the foundation and make it sort of safe um, because then you can get creative and do incredible things. But if if a brand were to go in without their eyes open and, you know, there is potential for... Uh, reputation issues and mm. uh, sort of a bad experience. So I always feel like I'm the sort of like the really annoying person. It's probably because I'm in also in crisis management. My job is to worry about everything yes, and enough. then prepare for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it does make, make me slightly annoying because I'm like, but what if? But well, what if? not at all. I think a podcast like this is to cover those, kick those things over. I mean, one last point on the metaverse. It, it is a meta creation, a Mark Zuckerberg creation at the moment. Uh uh, uh, unless I suppose you, you tell me, but there are sort of parallel versions. Is it um, some sort of play for Meta, the company, to kind of transcend the shared, um, you know, common open internet and create their own kind of new special wall garden? Well, yes, that would be the uh, that would be their their um, approach, and hence the sort of the change of the name. But um, you know, the metaverse is is not just Facebook or, or Meta. Um, it is so much more than that and, and you know, it spans across online gaming and, and virtual worlds and, and, you know, the potential of what it could be, but it's it's a lot more, it's a lot bigger than that. Right. Um, 
and so I think it's it's sort of savvy, of course. So alternatives are available. Alternative universes are available. Well, it's it's essentially all of the universes all tied up together. That's right. it's you know it's, yes. it's so much bigger. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, if someone comes in and tries to sort of grab it themselves and says I've, that's what I've called it and I'm labeling it, then that that's a business decision. But it's so much bigger than just meta. So um, you mentioned that you're um, you're 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 an out gay female leader of a company, an yes. entrepreneur, and um, a great advocate. Um, talk a little bit as we come towards the end of the, the of the chat, which has been brilliant so far. Thank you. But talk a little bit about your your current roles, what you're what you're standing for, any campaigning or activities you do, and then how do you square that with with running a company? Because there's only so many hours in the day, and energy gets sapped. So how do you balance one and the other? Of course. Well, I would sort of caveat that there's always massive guilt that I'm not doing enough. Um, uh, but what I do try and do is uh, at least uh, talk about it when I can, because uh, it was it was something that. Um, I came from a privileged background in that I've worked in, in at the BBC uh, at Cello in, in publishing where it really wasn't an issue to be uh, you know an out uh, lesbian woman. Um, and so I, I didn't really think about things when I started my agency. It was just like, well, that's who I am and whatever, get on with it. Um, but then, you know, as I educated myself more and got to sort of realise that there are so many people that go back in the closet when they get to their first job, for example. Um, there's been uh, surveys that were done by uh, Vodafone in just a couple of years ago that say that's still the case. It's about 41% of uh, people from the LGBTQ uh, community are not feeling comfortable to come out at, at their job. And that's so sad. Um, you know, everyone should be able to be themselves and... Uh, and uh, be you know bring their authentic self to work so i felt kind of obliged to have a bit more of a platform um even if it's just to sort of you know uh, create an environment in my agency where i want everyone at my agency to feel uh you know included and uh as i said bring their best self to work but if I can just talk about it in the industry, it does mean that I've been invited along to things like uh, advertising and, uh, you know, speaking on the uh, in campaign on on the, uh, the the John Lewis campaign, for example. So, if I can have a very small voice, I'm going to use it and uh, and bang on about it um, as much as possible, yeah. and and hopefully, uh, you know, even if I move the needle. A tiny bit, it's worth doing. Mm. Well, I'd say you're developing a very good and strong voice, and you know, congratulations to you for what you've done so far. Thank you, and and, and, and you know, keep going. Do you ever feel that um, that you get almost like too many invitations on that footing, and you'd rather talk about just business or, or social media? Is there any element where you kind of filling a slot that's needed when you've got so many other things to talk about? Uh, no, I. I... I am always happy to talk about various different subjects. And what's actually really funny about today is that you've really kind of had to test me around social media. The weird thing is that most of the time I'm doing sort of talks and podcasts and webinars, it's often about uh, either sort of culture, remote working or uh, LGBTQ uh, issues. So it's actually really nice to talk about social talk media. About <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, well, that's good. So we've hopefully achieved a good, good balance. So tomorrow it's traditional at the end of the dog and bone podcast to ask the guests to recount a slightly more light-hearted moment which is to ask you what's your most embarrassing moment in a business situation 
Oh, I think I've got a good one. <laughs> one of our uh, big clients uh, was uh, Nintendo. Absolutely loved working with Nintendo. And uh, I went out to um, Japan, to Kyoto, to actually meet the, uh, the exec team. And it was the first time I would have been meeting them in person. And I took the... Uh, so, number one mistake, I didn't have uh, a translator with me, which actually would have been a, a good move. But um, I but I did want to do everything right. You know, the business culture I'd bought, um, I'd learned how to do the uh, giving of the business cards. Um, and, and I just wanted to make a good impression. I also bought a special because I'm a bit of a nerd I bought a, a business card holder that that you sort of press on the side and it sort of opens <laughs> up and I was like oh my god this is going to wow them I knew what I was doing and uh, when I went in to meet them uh, I opened my business card and all of the cards just flew out and went on the floor now I tried to style it out mm. and laugh nothing they just there was there was no emotion and I just wanted to cry um but it, it was okay they were very very kind but yeah that was that was pretty so pretty your, awful. your big moment where you were going to do the classic yeah. card giving cultural thing <laughs> was all over the I'd floor prepped, I'd, oh, everything no. was rehearsed and no it was a disaster that must have been a, a chilling moment but sounds like you toughed it out yeah. Tamara Littleton chief executive and founder of the social element thanks very much for joining us on the dog and bone podcast thank you it's been a pleasure Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast and if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog.